0: Hi, I'm Charles Critchell and I'm the founder and editor of Fair City, a London-based city transport think tank which aims to advocate that city transport can be more accessible, equitable and sustainable for the users it serves. I'd like to start by welcoming you to our Insight series, where in each episode a guest and I will discuss how COVID-19 has specifically impacted the transport network and urban fabric of a global city, and the ways in which this could develop both during and beyond the current pandemic. Today we're focusing on Singapore, a sovereign city-state and island country and the second of our global cities. Known as the Garden City, Singapore is situated off the southern tip of the Malay Peninsula, and has long been a strategic port at the commercial heart of Southeast Asia. With a modern-day population of just over 5.6 million people, Singapore is known as being one of the world's wealthiest cities, owing to its financial, logistics and manufacturing sectors, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Richard Lambert, a UK-based urban practitioner with extensive domestic and international experience in walking-centric street and urban green space development. Richard is the founder of Natural Walking Cities, a collaborative sustainable urbanism platform, while he also works with Cities Forum, an international NGO. Hi Rich, how are you and can you briefly explain where you're joining us from?
1: Hi Charles, Um, I'm all right thanks, thanks for having me here. I'm calling from the UK so just the first thing to note that I'm not actually in Singapore um, but it is a place I have been a lot recently and it's a place that I'm very interested in, have ties to and friends there Um, and the last time I was there was October last year Um, but I've had regular communication with sort of colleagues and friends that are there now during the situation obviously with COVID-19.
0: Okay great with that in mind can you briefly explain a bit about Singapore's geography and the ways in which people navigate the city?
1: Sure, Um, so Singapore is a really interesting case when you think about it globally. Um, It's an island state, so it's relatively small, only around 700 uh, square kilometers in size. Um, It's situated in Southeast Asia, um, and it's only about 70 miles north of the equator. Um, So very hot and humid tropical environment there. Um, You've got Malaysia to the north um, and Indonesia to the south. Um, So And it's positioned very strategically um and it has been throughout its history on important for example trade routes so that's one of the reasons it was first founded in the 19th century was it was along important trade routes between east and west Um, and throughout its history up until now when it gained independence in the 1960s up till now it's kind of aimed and strived to keep that strategic importance and maybe that's changed in some ways in terms of the focus of that but for example now it's got one of the busiest shipping ports in the world there It has one of the, I think it's one of the second uh, busiest airports. Um, It constantly tops the list of uh, a lot of other important metrics, like being one of the best places to do business in the world, one of the most stable economies, um, often one of the smartest cities. So it's kind of, it's changed its focus, but it's still globally very, very important um, and strategic in terms of its location. Um, As an island, um, it's obviously relatively small, um, but it's got a population of around 4.6, 5.6, uh, to 5.7 million um so it's actually one of the most densest places in the world as well um and it's been able to get to this point through uh sort of following really really sort of strategic policies around uh trying to make use of this space um and make it a sort of most livable place um a thing you might notice when you go to singapore if you've never been one uh, the first time you get there is that it's actually comes across as a very modern city um it's got very very sort of uh efficient um, and smart infrastructure. Um, and it's often referred to as sort of very futuristic in, in that in some ways, but at the same t- time, it's also a very green and natural city. Um, it's taken advantage of its climate there. Um, it's one of the greenest cities in the world with around nearly 50% green coverage. Um, so there's lots of different uh, sort of images that will come to your mind when you first go there. Um, and some of them are quite sort of opposing. Um, at the same time, we're talking about how people travel around the city um, at the same time as being one of the smartest it's also got one of the best public transport systems globally as well, and it's o- often tops the metrics of sort of satisfaction levels for citizens in terms of the availability of transport, but it's also again remarkably clean and efficient. Um, I read the other day that a twenty minute train delay made it onto the news um, in Singapore because they're so used to trains being on time and I think if if that happened in England, then you probably wouldn't have much uh, much else on the news. But it's generally the public transport system is, is very efficient and it takes the mode shares around 44 um, percent for public transport use, um, going up to nearly 70% during the peak times. So a large proportion of transport and travel is done by public transport. Um, at the same time, we were talking about the fact that obviously Singapore's a small place. And because of this, there the government has had to try and really control and restrict the amount of private car use there is on the island because it's a small place Um, so they've used various measures and policies to try and limit the amount of private cars there are and really focus uh, now on improving that and that integrated public transport system.
0: Yes that's great and obviously given this density and its status as a global city can you explain to us a bit about the current situation in Singapore given the pandemic and how movement throughout the city is being affected by it?
1: Yeah. Um, so right now, Singapore is in a, a, a sort of lockdown, so similar to a lot of countries. Um, but, this, but throughout the kind of outbreak from earlier early this year, this, this has really changed. There's been a number of different phases. So when Singapore first um, had its first cases, it was one of the first places outside of China to have uh, the virus. Um, and because it has very strong ties culturally and sort of economically with China, this was bound to happen. Um, But for the first couple of months in the first wave, um, Singapore was actually dealt with and dealt with the virus in a really efficient and effective way and very quickly. And it was looked to as almost best practice along with other kind of South South Asian countries, such as like Taiwan and uh, South Korea. Um, They were able to quickly uh, use implement testing and track and trace programs to make sure that um, the virus didn't spread much within the um, population. And they were also able to use a lot of their experience that they gained from um, dealing with previous uh, pandemics um, and viruses that have happened, for example, like SARS and the Zika virus. Um, So there was a lot of experience there that the the government was able to sort of utilise. And I've got some some of my friends out there actually sort of had the virus in Singapore and they sort of got to experience some of the sort of measures firsthand. And some of them, for example, uh, if you were... Diagnosed with the virus, then you had to be quarantined straight away, taken out of your household and put into a hospital, even if you were um, asymptomatic. And this meant that obviously you were stopping the spread, and any partners or people in your house then had to self-isolate um, and also had to provide re- regular records of your daily temperature and things like that and your whereabouts to really restrict that um, that spread of the virus. Um, and so, you do. Singapore was able to use a lot of its experience and um, sort of rules and regulations, and also um, Sort of smart initiatives to really control the spread of the virus in that first phase, and that went up until about March time. Um, and it was really had it under control and sort of no more than 50 cases daily. Um, and then right now, uh, maybe sort of about a month ago, um, they were started to have um, second waves, so Singaporeans coming back from other countries and bringing the virus from other countries in the world to Singapore, which saw a little bit of a spike. Uh, but the largest spike recently has been in um, migrant dormitories. So Singapore is obviously very modern city with a lot mass building infrastructure and development programs and a lot of that's done by migrant workers um and they live in sort of more sort of packed conditions in in dormitories um and there's basically an outbreak in in some of these dormitories which has seen a huge spike in the the numbers of uh cases and that then also led to what's the second phase of um sort of measures that singapore brought in which is called the circuit breaker measures and that was really moved singapore into more of a kind of lockdown. Uh, uh sort of phasing so before we we're talking about transport and the way people moved under the first wave they singapore was able because of all these stringent measures was able to me- almost be uh, sort of treated as normal so people st- could still go to work if they wanted to um and if they're able to um lots of different shops and services were open um, singapore had already tried to phase in uh like sh- uh, spreading out the peak transport hours to try and stop the spread on transport um, uh, and schools were open still so there was sort of normal kind of activity but then under the new lockdown um, all but essential services are now uh, not going ahead so school is now completely education is completely happening from home um, and all but essential work is again happening from home and so i think uh, that kind of really shows you the sort of the severity of the, the, the actions that have had to take place now. So there's a, it's a big change, but if you look at the spike, it's actually going down now um, with these new measures. But they're going to be in place until sort of June now. Um, and yeah, it's really interesting to see that juxtaposition uh, in in how it's dealt with the different uh, cases.
0: Yeah. So some of these measures are really interesting, including contact tracing, surveillance, big data, and tech. And also another thing you've mentioned to me before is this consistent communication by the government. So while these are all helping to contain the spread of the virus, many of these measures would be considered invasive of personal liberties in other cities, countries and cultures. What is it about the city's culture and governance which enables Singapore to adopt these measures?
1: Yeah, I think that's really, that's really important and interesting to sort of unpack and look at. Um, I think it's obviously there's a, a history that, Uh, different types of governance across the world. So in Singapore, there's uh, historically been a much stronger role of government in in sort of ruling how people's lives, how people live their lives and also how they actually plan for uh, uh, developing the city as well. Um, So there's generally a bit more of an acceptance about the rule of the government and the rule of sort of data collection within um, society, and also maybe that extends even to privacy as well, and that uh, this is actually for the public good to maybe have your uh, location tracked um, and to make sure that you don't spread the virus. Um, I think that Singapore's sort of experience, previous experience with viruses, has also put it in a really good um, sort of location as well, a situation because the, both the population and the government have been used to. Uh, dealing with these crises previously, obviously not at this extent, but it's meant that they've been able to learn from previous mistakes and strategies that they've practiced before. For example, with SARS or swine flu or Zika virus in the past, um, and this has meant they've been able to fine-tune and integrate public health and the science behind it into the kind of government uh, departments and how it can uh, respond. And like you said, one of the key ways is responding in a consistent and and sort of effective way. Um, and I think that sort of uh, bolstered by the fact that there's a strong kind of trust within people that the government is dealing with um the situation in the in the correct manner um and so yeah from like i said from the beginning um when you talk to people who live in singapore like people would receive whatsapp messages from the government with around every daily updates around the numbers of uh cases also what they're doing and advice around social distancing and public health advice um there's information throughout the whole city so on public transport um, you had regular temperature testing on the streets as well, so and in schools and at workplaces, so they would even give out stickers to tell you after you've had a temperature test like what, what what level your temperature was. Um, there was even uh, a lot I mean one of the big things at the beginning was the screening health screening when people coming into Singapore, which again is something that slipped in maybe other countries, but because of uh, Singapore's location and proximity to China and also. Uh, sort of culturally and uh, the population wise there's a lot of people coming in from China they knew that they'd have to sort of be sort of very systematic in terms of testing. Um, I think that yeah it's, it's got, obviously got its own unique situation, culture, uh, environment that really had a an impact on that but I think that it's definitely um, a case to look at for best practice when dealing with uh, COVID-19 and the virus.
0: Yeah some good points there and just two things to pick up on Obviously, we spoke about the authoritarian nature of the government, and it's just worth pointing out that the PAP, or People's Action Party, have been in power more or less since Singapore became a sovereign state, which I guess enables the government to forgo political short-termism, which is clearly an issue in many other countries. I guess the other thing I just wanted to pick up on is that 75% of Singaporeans are ethnically Chinese, which I think you alluded to earlier. So, with this in mind, how important do you think this is in terms of people's trust in the government?
1: Yeah, I think that it, the culture obviously plays a, a big role in that, and and obviously the fact that the culturally Chinese, there's a it can be seen sometimes. We talked about having more acceptance of authority and respect for for rule and law um, in those cultures, and I think probably a bigger like a bigger point is what you've also said is that the Singapore's and the government's ability to plan long term for its development. Um, and also to then adapt um, when they see thing, issues arising. So when they've come up against our previous viruses in the past, that's meant that since then they've been able to learn from previous mistakes and then plan for the future. Um, and I think that then reinforces the population's um, sort of confidence in the government in terms of being able to handle situations. And again, that's bolstered by having strong, consistent communication.
0: Yeah, so I think that strategy is going to be a key word that we keep referring back to today, as it really does seem to be a tenet of Singapore as both a city and sovereign state. So in view of this, Singapore seems to have adopted a very strategic approach to the pandemic based on the issues discussed, so experience, culture and governance. So how is this approach also informed by the geographical position of Singapore within Southeast Asia?
1: I think it's obviously played a part, um, as we talked about a bit already, in the fact that it's um, geographically close to where the the virus started or emerged from in China. Um, And also a lot of other countries in Southeast Asia that the virus came to first, um, in the first kind of wave of the virus. So that obviously played a big part in it. And I think probably actually helped it in a way to be, more ready for what was coming um, so for example and that's also been borne out in previous viruses that have also generally originated in asian or middle eastern countries where singapore's been quite close to those so they already knew that they would have to be prepared whereas if you compare it to for example european or american countries maybe some of the some of the responses haven't been quite as prepared or as ready because it was potentially seen as an issue that was happening on the other side of the world whereas singapore um both geographically is obviously close to the, uh, the epicenter and culturally with a high portion of Chinese, ethnically Chinese population in, in um, Singapore. Um, but equally, as I said about the beginning, Singapore is a highly globalized city, not just geographically. Um, over the last sort of 60, 70 years, it's positioned itself as a global city um, through shipping or connectivity or finance, manufacturing, trade. Um, so it's always looking outward um, as a city. Um, and so that really puts it actually at an advantage when it comes to things like pandemics that don't abide by strict borders. Um, so, uh, for example, it knew it had to screen people on arrival coming into Singapore because it was going to be vulnerable, have strict quarantine measures. Um, and I think that you also look at it in terms of its relationship with other countries like Malaysia, um, which is one of its closest um, countries, neighboring countries. They've got, um, they almost, they almost share a land border. They, they don't, they're an island, but there's bridges over it. Um, And over the history, like they, for example, had to sort of import drinking water from Malaysia or sand for reclamation, um, even have army bases in other countries. So they've always had a reliance on other countries for some things. And over the years, um, Singapore has been able to become more self-reliant on things like water resources. But they've always looked to international relations as a a key part of its sort of uh, strategy as a country.
0: And I just want to take a look at public transport and just view it through this lens of Singapore's competitiveness and embrace of globalization, which has enabled it to become one of the world's wealthiest cities, while it is also consistently rated as one of the world's most expensive cities to live in. How then has this wealth been harnessed to create an exemplary public transport system?
1: Uh, So, like you said, Singapore is one of the most expensive cities to live in, um, but it's also one of the most stable economies globally. Um, And it's kind of, as in 2017, it had a surplus. um, It has no foreign debt of about 1.3% of its GDP. So they've been able to, through kind of stringent government rule and long planning, um, and just being financially sort of very sort of uh, clever, they've been able to maintain, make sure that they're they're not in debt. which means that they've got a lot of more funding potentially to invest into their infrastructure. Um, Singapore is also we talked about it before a resource poor nation, so they 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 don't have a lot of resources on their land, but they've had to sort of become competitive in other industries, so like manufacturing, for example, trading. It's one of the uh, sort of busiest sort of financial hubs in the world, and it's been I think it's been ranked as the best place to do business because it's one of the least corrupt globally even though maybe it has a strong governmental sort of rule it's actually one of the least corrupt so it's created these other kind of competitive advantages which mean that it's sort of economically very strong Um, and this long-termism and planning also extends into transport as well Um, and it's basically because again because of its small nature Singapore and the government has realized that you can't they have to build a, a good public transport system to service such a dense population. You can't rely on private, private transport and private vehicles because there's not, just not enough space. Um, so the Land Transport Authority, so the LTA, is the, the organisation that is um, the department that's, that's uh, in charge of transport in Singapore. Um, and they basically, they follow a kind of uh, a rule of, Singapore generally follows a rule of investing in infrastructure in, across the government and in transport um but then the and subsidizing it but then operational costs are paid off paid generally by for example fares that's their kind of model um, up until sort of the last sort of 10 years and that's been something that they seem almost like an ideological sort of value the idea that we don't want to give handouts and pay for everything but we'll invest in high quality infrastructure so whether that's mrt systems or um fully integrated transit hubs which mean that it's easy to connect through and use different transport modes. Um, And so the Singapore's been able to invest heavily in its infrastructure um, and at the same time maintaining kind of uh, low fares. It's actually one of the most affordable transport systems in the world. And that obviously gives it high satisfaction levels within the population. Um, And I think that now there is and it's becoming an issue in some of the parts of the transport system that they, the government is having to uh, subsidize the fare, operational costs a bit more as well. And that brings up sort of questions in the future, maybe of whether they'll have to increase fares um, and or increase the amount of investment that the, the government is willing to put in, because it's really important for Singapore that they actually want to really um, create this, like you said, this kind of exemplary public transport system, um, because it is, does have this image and it is a very modern uh, and highly successful city and highly globalized city. So in it to enable, to ensure that it can maintain this uh, position, then it, it needs to sort of make sure that it maintains its investment in its infrastructure.
0: So alongside this strong public transport network, you have a number of car de-incentivisation schemes. And it's worth just pointing out that Singapore was in fact the first city to introduce a congestion pricing scheme with the implementation of the Singapore Area Licensing Scheme back in 1975. So in view of this, what other measures has a city implemented to discourage car use? And in turn, encourage other forms of transport.
1: Yeah, like you said, it, it, it was one of the leading countries in terms of trying to limit the amount of the car use um, across the island. And again, I think that's really borne out, let me say it again, it's, it's born out of its size of the country. Um, there literally isn't enough room for everybody to, or for a large portion of the population to have a, a vehicle, but also to use it. All the time, um, and it's been able to control congestion because of that. Um, so car ownership is currently at around 11% of the population. Whereas if you compare that, for example, to another big city like London, it's around 54%. So that is a big, big difference, um, and that's all down to sort of government policies that have looked to uh, make sure that and limit the amount of vehicles that are on the roads um, in Singapore. So one of the ways they do that is they the government limits the number of permits which are allowed annually. Um, so that you have to have a permit to be able to buy a car. Um, and so they actually control the amount of cars that are able to be bought and purchased um, on a yearly basis. And they can actually even, depending on the demand, they can control the pricing of it as well. So that might go up if there's higher demand. Um, and they also have high fees and duties when buying a car. So for example, a car can cost almost four times as much in Singapore than it does in Europe. Um, and that's all due to sort of uh, Trying to limit the amount of vehicles again and and discourage people from buying them and and like you mentioned the electronic road pricing scheme which essentially is a sort of congestion charge um, and it aims to manage the traffic congestion by internalizing the external cost of driving which we all know is kind of the means of congestion charging Um, and it basically works to flatten out the peak demand by spreading the usage across different time periods so um, and that means that they, Singapore is like one of the least congested cities in the world, and they've and they've got a very they managed to maintain high sort of um, movement rates throughout the city. And that obviously has knock-on effects in terms of maybe air localized air pollution um, in certain areas. So if you're reducing congestion, then you're making sure that pollution in certain places can can be reduced. Um, equally, there's actually laws in Singapore which make it illegal to if you don't give way to buses um, and don't let them out. So they've actually as well as sort of restricting vehicle use and the number of vehicles on the road. Um, they've tried to uh, sort of make sure that public transport is prioritized on the roads. Um, so that, that's the ways that they're trying to sort of limit private car use and, and, and spread its usage across. And um, there's even incentives, for example, to drive at different times of the day. So you're not driving and you're not using your car at peak time. Um, and this is even the same in public transport, the public transport system. They try to sort of to try and reduce congestion they, try, they actually use incentives for people to travel at different times of the day. Um, and another key part of de-incentivizing private car use is obviously incentivizing public transport use and other modes um, and that's obviously how we, how we talked about it. Singapore has a highly efficient and clean um, and affordable public transport system and that's been a key policy lever that, that the government has pushed on and a strategy that they're trying to push for and this is nothing this is not something that's going to be letting up in the future the one of the main campaigns they've got at the moment is um, walk cycle and ride and it's a key LTA so Land Transport Authority government policy um, with a target of reaching of peak journeys being made by public transport by 2030. So at the moment, it's at just under 70% of peak journeys made by public transport. Um, So you can see that they're really pushing to make sure that uh, transport is sustainable and efficient um, across the 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 island. Um, And I think the key thing for me as well as I'm very interested interested in is the walking part of that as well, and making sure that the public transport is not just seen as trains, buses. And, and metro is actually walking and cycling can form part of that so the journeys onward to and from public transit stations are really important and in singapore for example um they actually try and protect pedestrians and improve their, the comfort of their walking to and from transit stations so for example from uh, uh, housing development they'll have covered walkways all the way to the nearest bus stop because heavy rainfall is really common in singapore or or, or it can be very humid and uncomfortable um, and this is equally the same for kind of from links between transit station, train stations and shopping malls, for example. So they are all, they're really having that targeted approach of sort of walking, cycling and using public transport. Hopefully in the future will mean that they will continue to improve uh, the share of uh, transport that is made by public transport.
0: There does also seem to be a bit of a paradox between sustainable transport and car use. So particularly if you look at the scale of some of the city's roads, including these big six-lane highways, especially located around key transport interchanges, why is this, do you think?
1: Yeah, again, this is really interesting. Um, so you've got behind all that, those big policies and strategies around public transport and efficiency and, and reducing private car use. You'd, like you say, you do have these huge roads um, that come into the centre of Singapore. Um, and I think that's born out of maybe when Singapore was developed so from like the 60s onwards That was a time when cars were king and obviously singapore may have been trying to promote public transport even from that time but actually cars are still common and if you look at other cities that are built around the same time often you have the same situation um, but equally cars in singapore even though its use is heavily um curbed are a status symbol for um a sort of people that want to sort of uh, have a, a high status within society, and so I think one of the key one of the example of that is that the Singapore Grand Prix is actually held on the inner city roads in the CBD area of Singapore, and actually that just shows you how wide those roads are because you have to to have a Grand Prix on it, they have to be pretty wide. And I think that it's it's interesting in that way that Singapore is often a sort of place of contradictions. In some ways, it's a modern city, but it's also really green. Um, it's got a brilliant public transport system, but equally it's, it has um, roads that are huge that are quite make, sometimes quite make it quite difficult for pedestrians to cross, um, or um, maybe might encourage people to want to drive.
0: So, if we just turn now and look at the urban environment more broadly, you touched upon green infrastructure earlier in terms of walking and cycling routes, and at the start of the episode, I did in fact introduce Singapore as the Garden City, owing to the way in which the government has prioritised embedding green infrastructure into the urban fabric. Why is green infrastructure so important in Singapore? And can you provide a few examples of how it's been implemented?
1: So Singapore, like we said before, is often referred to as a city in a garden. Um, so it's kind of turned on its head. It's not just, they're not just um, gardens in cities, it's the city that sit, sat in a garden itself. And, may, and you can imagine that when you know that it's a tropical place, it's lush, um, vegetation grows very easily there um and you might think that that's the reason why but actually um it's it's actually born out of a strong policy and and greening strategy over the last 50 60 years um and i think you can see that when you look at the fact that around 95 percent of the original forest has been deforested to create the dense and livable city that singapore is today but actually at the same time they've ensured that green space and urban green space is prioritized within the city and is and that now they have a a greenery percentage of around 50 percent so it may not all be original forests and growth but they are ensuring that greenery is maintained within the city Um, and the reason for that is because they've had this strong commitment to it from in within from its inception and they've had a lot of they've had support from chief planners and politicians so for example the former prime minister Lee Kuan Yew um, and also the, one of the chief planners, Dr. Liao Thai was were instrumental in promoting greenery and believing in the benefits that greenery had for cities. Um, and the main sort of focus of this, if you go back to the 60s when Singapore in 65 when it began independence, there was, had a lot of issues, environmental issues to deal with. So a lot of rivers were polluted. They had a lot of um, issues around waste collection and disposal. Um, and they had to make a decision that they actually wanted to create a cleaner, greener and nicer place for people to live um, and work and if they were going to attract more investment into Singapore and become a different kind of place um, uh, so they actually and actually had to bring people along with them at the time so it may as well as it being a top-down governmental approach to incorporating greenery they actually had to develop a lot of sort of environmental educational um, strategies at the beginning to make sure people dispose of their waste properly or didn't dispose waste into the river or cleaned up manufacturing for example so all from this point there's been a belief and understanding that greenery and looking after the environment has a positive impact on physical spaces um and also the mental health of citizens and that and that can have a big impact especially in highly densely populated places like singapore has become Um, so this kind of focus on long-term planning really helps singapore from the it's, it's sort of initial stages uh keep a kind of check on some of the maybe economic goals that you normally get with rapid industrialization and urbanization. So it checked that to make sure that throughout Singapore's development, it was bringing the population on and with their sort of greening strategy. Um, So if we're looking at some of the key uh, sort of policies that that, that they've used, especially now. um, So in addition to focusing on public health and education of people from the outset, there was some sort of key green space policy. So um, for example, the URA, so the Urban Redevelopment Authority, which is in charge of a lot of uh, building development in Singapore, um, has policies that show that 25% of every development have to be open green space and they have to have be accessible to the public. So it's not just creating green space for private users of buildings, it's make, having to make sure that people can actually access these green spaces. Um, and on a couple of other projects, there's, there's also 100% greenery replacement policies on developments as well which means that if, you're, if you're taking down any green space you have to put it back and give it back so that it's open to the public um and i think equity and access to green space has been a key part of this these policies that singapore's had as well um because by the nature of it being a very dense and a small island with a dense population they have aligned with the fact that they want to create a green space and access to greenery for people they've had to uh, create linear parks which connect up different green spaces so the national parks board which is in charge of the uh, parks and green and open spaces has created what's called the park connector networks over the years so pcns and they cover about over 300 kilometers of walking and cycling routes which are green um, and they connect maybe green and open spaces together with housing areas with commercial areas even into the cbd district Um, and it means that you are bring almost bringing greenery if you, if you don't have a park right next to you, you're bringing that greenery to maybe where, near where you live.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And if we just run with the idea of the Park Connector Network and how it relates to another long-running theme in Singapore, which is the importance of planning. So as you say, the PCN is this extensive web of green links which seemingly taps into every aspect of Singaporean life. So to what extent do you think this demonstrates the value of good planning and the need for strong governance in being able to implement it?
1: I think that it does show that the, the benefits of being able to have long term planning. I think if you talk to anyone who works in sustainability or in urban development, then to be able to have that long run into would be anyone would take that um, and to have that ability to sort of plan ahead, um, but obviously not all governments have that that uh, advantage. So I think it shows that planning can be an essential part of trying to make ensure that your city can respond to environmental and sustainability concerns and issues um, and being able to commit to long-term plans and prioritise livability or sustainability that Singapore might have done. Um, uh, but also, I think it also shows that Singapore has also had to bring people along with it. So you don't just uh, create a clean and green environment, a friendly environmentally friendly place just by having top-down governmental rules about how you design a city. People have to sort of believe in that as well. Um, and I think there may be, there's a juxt- you can really see that juxtaposition of Singapore with other Southeast Asian countries. Maybe when you look at it, the way it treats waste and the fact that um, it's illegal to chew chewing gum in Singapore or have to even have chewing gum on you because of the, what impact it might have on the environment and also the uh, sort of the urban fabric. Whereas if you go to other countries in Southeast Asia, there are much higher levels of, of waste in rivers or waste on the streets. And even though Singapore's developed in a similar was at a similar stage, they've, they've actually, through commitment and long-term planning and prioritising green, uh, being green and clean, that they've actually been able to sort of change their trajectory massively.
0: So if you look at another Singapore success story, uh, namely its housing, which ties back to what we've been discussing with this long trajectory of planning and strong governance, which seems effective in, in engaging with stakeholders. Can you briefly explain why housing in Singapore is considered so successful? and perhaps more importantly the role which housing plays in creating livable neighborhoods?
1: Yeah and I think that housing is another again one of the success stories in Singapore um, and whereby sort of public housing so government funded housing actually makes up the majority so up 80 percent of the population live in government housing, and if you compare it to other countries, it's vast. Outstrips most other countries in terms of the population that live in those, these households, and I think, and also the satisfaction levels that the population has with those. Um, and I think if you want to go back, to the reasons for that, that, one of them is that the land constraints that Singapore has. So right from the beginning of its development, it was just a small city, island city, um, and, and you're going to have to you're going to have to create um, buildings for people. Um, for enough people to live in, you're going to have to create in a highly dense manner. Um, and from the beginning, in the sort of 1965, when Singapore gained independence, it was their large portion of the population were living in um, slums, so in poor quality housing. Um, and at the beginning, the government, Singapore government made the decision that actually, we want to focus on livable density, so we want to focus on providing houses for people but making sure they're livable and that they can improve the quality of life of people um, and that has been again a strong policy um, and strategy right from the beginning um, and that meant that's meant that even at the moment um, in 2017 for example singapore was ranked 25th in the world on quality of life rankings um, even ahead of other cities like london again which is 40th um, and so ensuring quality of life and equity of access to house goods housing and neighborhoods was, was a key policy right from the beginning um, and a key way that Another key lever of this in Singapore is that house building is based on place in Singapore. So, for example, in other countries, house building might be built on building the individual number of houses. Whereas in Singapore, right from the beginning, um, they've created plans around creating satellite neighborhoods. So, for example, all around the central business district, um, the initial first plans in the 1970s focused on creating a sort of circular three different livable neighborhoods all around that that were interconnected. Um, And the idea is still that still happens today. In Singapore, so the Housing Development Board, which is the government department which manages built house building in Singapore, um, has a very integrated approach to building um, to to building houses. So they're not just building houses by themselves; they're building communities, they're building neighbourhoods that are integrated with commercial centres, with transport connections and transit hubs. They're maybe they're uh, integrated with community centres, with doctors, and so the idea really is that people can live within these areas and get all they need from within their local area without having to cross the the country or across Singapore or to to other neighborhoods necessarily. Um, And so that's one of the key things. So they're focusing on place and integrated neighborhoods and also quality of life. But they're also um, focused on trying to improve equity and access for people to own their own flats as well. So these buildings, so 95% of that 80% of the housing, um, which is publicly uh, is owned by individuals, so the government has made it, has provided subsidies to encourage people to be able to own and buy their own flats. Um, and they're actually bought, um, they're sort of bought on a lease from the government. But that also means that the government is able to continue to maintain and upgrade the housing to a high standard. Um, so the government plays a big role in improving and making sure public housing is both um, equitable, accessible, but also at, at a high standard. So it's kind of seen more as a, both a social and economic asset to the economy. Whereas if you compare it to other countries, public housing or council housing is generally not seen in that way. Um, and in Singapore, there isn't, for example, a stigma attached to living in, a public, in public housing. It's, it's, it's kind of seen as a, as, a, as a positive thing.
0: I think that's a good point. And something which Singapore is famed for is obviously this livable density. But given the proximity of its housing, how do you think that these localised and well-planned neighbourhoods will respond both during and beyond the current lockdown?
1: Yeah, really interesting question. I mean, you'd think from the outset that it would be able to, it could, it could go two ways for me, I think, looking at it. Like, one One way you could look at it is that maybe the density could be a, a disadvantage when it comes to the virus, because, obviously, people are living closer together. Often, Singapore flats are smaller um, than maybe other countries as well, so maybe people living more closely. Um, however, I think in the majority of Singapore's population, if you look at the way the virus has gone through the country, actually, they, they've been able to control community transmission quite quite well within Singapore. So it hasn't really been borne out that this density actually has meant that Singapore has had a, a much more sort of wider outbreak. And I think that's obviously due to the swiftness of the government and the way they've been able to respond and the way the populations responded. Um, but equally, it potentially shows that maybe well-planned and, and livable density actually can work in some ways um, to sort of, uh, sort of create these neighborhoods that are, resi- that are resilient. Um, I think that another way you could look at it is equally that the neighborhoods might be resilient because these spaces actually create communities and community cohesion and social capital, which means that people are more likely to maybe look after each other um, or more likely to have uh, support. So maybe that's looking after people that might be socially isolating, like elderly populations um, or people that have um, underlying health conditions. Um, So there's kind of that that community cohesion angle that could be a positive. Um, On the other hand, One big big issue that we've seen in other countries, particularly in the UK and other maybe American European countries, is that during the lockdown, access to green space has been a real issue. So some people in in highly dense urban cities in Europe haven't been able to access parks because the way cities are designed. Um, So whereas if you look at someone like Singapore, the idea was that, that, that housing and people are able to access greenery either through parks or through the Park Connector Network. And having spoken to some friends out there who live in Singapore, they're saying that the Park Connector Network is crowded, obviously, because people are using it a lot to access do their daily walking, cycling, jogging. But actually, um, it shows that it's a vital asset to have that greenery and to be, that these have always been able to plan that greenery into and integrate it into the housing developments. Um, uh, so I think that, yeah, it, it would definitely be the pandemic and the virus definitely be a test of this kind of, um, these localised neighbourhoods and, and whether that has uh, brought the benefits um, that you think with it.
0: So you've spoken at length about the success of Singapore in terms of integrating top level governance with stakeholder involvement uh, across transport, green infrastructure and most noticeably housing and neighbourhoods. However, what levers or mechanisms are open to community groups and NGOs to perhaps challenge instances in which the government's approach hasn't always been the right one?
1: Yeah, well, I think that that's a really interesting point. And I think that going off the back of the last question, talking about these livable density and the idea that they can be resilient against the pandemic. I think the example now within Singapore where they've seen a spike in the spread of the virus has been, it's actually been particularly within the migrant uh, populations that live in very dense dormitories. And I think this shows, and an on the an example of Singapore where actually the way they've planned, uh, the way that the planning for the, the housing for these migrant workers has actually not been focused on the quality of life and actually that's a bit of a blight against some of the, uh, what's been happening there. But I think it's interesting because Singapore now is, they haven't been able to ignore it. And it's actually come to the front, the forefront in news and the government has acknowledged that this is an issue and that they're going to improve the immediate quality of life of the migrants to make sure they stop the spread. But I mean, I think it's looking likely that hopefully this could actually be a catalyst for improving. The quality of life and and the the planning of these migrant dormitories in the future because there's been a spotlight on it and i think that um singapore's kind of gone through a journey of the way they engage with communities and sort of people around the way they plan um the de- uh, the developments and i think that it's generally very top down but they do look to engage with um populations as well maybe in different ways that uh, than other countries um but i think in the future potentially that could change um as a result of Sort of issues like this that we've seen with them, with the migrant workers and the way they, their way their course have been planned.
0: So we're obviously focusing on how the global pandemic is impacting the transport network and urban fabric of different cities. But if you now just turn our attention to the impact which another global issue has on cities, namely climate change, we've spoken a lot about Singapore's geography, but now let's talk a bit about its topography, as in fact a third of the city is only five meters above sea level. What measures are the city's authorities taking to combat climate change, especially given that it's so vulnerable to rising sea levels?
1: So, as you say, Singapore is obviously in a potentially quite uh, challenging position when it comes to sea level rises, it being an island state. Um, and throughout its development, it's had to deal with trying to make sure that they can develop the city to the extent it needs to, but also protect it from things like sea level rises or from flooding. Um and I think that they've been able to use sort of ingenuity and, uh, and adaptiveness, and they've been able to sort of actually really sort of improve their environment and, and develop to such an extent, but equally to uh, respond to challenges around climate change. Um, and so like, whether, you talk, whether we're talking about flooding or extreme weather events, um, or even down to like access to water and water sovereignty, um, these issues are examples of how Singapore's been able to deal with big environmental issues. And so therefore, it puts in a good place to deal with something like climate change, for example. Um, And we've already talked about its public transport system. So they're looking to focus on improving sustainability of that um, and improve the amount of trips that are made by public transport rather than private vehicles. Um, And they also have have tried to make sure that they can reclaim as much water as possible from rain so that they sovereign they have enough water to provide for their population um but on the other hand singapore also because it's obviously a very developed developed city um and because their reliance on manufacturing as one of the uh, sort of core areas of the economy actually has a relatively high per capita emissions levels when you compare it to other countries so um and it has a quite a big reliance on fossil fuels for some and gas for electricity so there are some areas that singapore is working on to improve that um and to improve its commitments to sort of becoming uh carbon neutral in the future um so if you look at things like they, they've just recently um actually in, in implemented a carbon tax um on businesses and obviously that's going to be a key part of trying to reduce the emissions from manufacturing and and, and other industries within the country um, at the same time they're they're also looking at and have revised their um sort of climate change strategies recently as well um, Again, it comes back to potentially also comes back to the geographical size. Again, of, of Singapore, it's a small country, so therefore maybe it doesn't have the resources to be able to utilize all um, sort of as much renewable energy that it, that, it, that other countries might be able to. But um, I think what I was sort of trying to say is that actually Singapore has been able to deal with a lot of environmental issues in the past to make sure that it's it's providing for its people and that it's, it's developed you know developed to the extent it is now. Um, And that combined with the fact that it's one of the uh, sort of being rated as one of the smartest cities globally um, should put it in a good sort of state to actually be able to react to um, and to sort of mitigate um, climate change and reduce its carbon emissions, but also adapt to any kind of like um, instances that happen in the future.
0: That's fantastic. So thanks so much, Richard, for joining us.
1: Yeah, I really enjoyed it. It's been great chatting to you, Charles.
0: So, just a reminder that you can learn more about the interesting work that Rich is up to by heading to his website, naturalwalkingcities.com, and you can also follow him on Twitter at, at RichBlambert. I'd like to thank you for joining us, and if you did enjoy today's episode, please do take the time to leave a comment, tell your friends, and of course, please do subscribe. Finally, please join us again for our next episode, where we'll be taking a look at how another global city is responding to the transport, urban and environmental challenges posed by COVID-19.